This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our, our guest today is uh, Jill Gade, founder and CEO of Cross River Bank. And joining me for this podcast is Vinay Nair, who used to be on the faculty here at Wharton. Uh, and who's going to be collaborating with us on this series of podcasts on fintech. Uh, Jill and uh, Vinay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mukul. Jill, thank you for uh, joining us. And would love to get started with just a few minutes on your background, Jill. Sure. Um, Pleasure. So I was uh, born and raised in Paris, France. I went to school in Paris, um, went to business school in Paris, then um, joined a um, fine institution called um, Citicorp Venture Capital as an intern, Um, got uh, my internship um, extended to about a year, which gave me um, some sort of an appetite to get into um, the financial um, arena, uh, particularly in the U.S. and on Wall Street. And I crossed the border, or rather the Atlantic, back in October of, 2000, of 1991. Um, got my first job here in the U.S. at Bear Stearns in investment banking in the FIG group, uh, so working uh, primarily on banks and, and uh, insurance companies. Um, worked on a, a number of cross-border transactions, um, international IPOs, or privatizations of banks and insurance companies abroad in, uh, on the European continent. And then um, took a hiatus uh, for a couple of years uh, to learn the Talmud, and then came back uh, on Wall Street, worked at uh, BZW, um, so that's um, what is known today as Barclays Capital. I worked in, uh, this time on uh, technology investment banking, um, primarily on the cross-border M&A. And then um, left um, with uh, my boss at the time, Afsane Naimola, created a boutique investment bank focused on uh, technology from 2000 to 2005, and this opportunity fell in my lap um, late in 2007. Um, and um, I've been uh, the founder working furiously to try to uh, keep abreast of uh, the fast pace of the uh, fintech, uh, fintech world for the past 10 years now. Terrific. So let's pick it up from there, 2007, 2008. Obviously, a tough time for the banking industry. Uh, why and what inspired you to start the bank then? So, I, you know, like in every downturn, the, you you have obviously people perceive uh, certain things as being challenges, and then others uh, see the opportunity. Uh, in this case, um, uh, the opportunity was opening a bank that had a clean balance sheet, um, adequate equity and just uh, with a, a tremendous opportunity to buy quality assets that were being um, literally dumped by uh, numerous financial institutions, um, hedge funds, investors, and so on and so forth, for various reasons. That could, that could be margin calls. That could be uh, just uh, because they're, they had uh, breach triggers. Um, and, and the opportunity basically was to utilize either government leverage or depositors um, to deploy very quality assets, very safe, at uh, terms that were um, fairly stringent, um, uh, so basically safe and sound that would satisfy the regulators. Um, and um, 
so we, we managed to execute that uh, that vision uh, fairly rapidly to a point where we we managed to extract uh, profits or to generate profits for the bank. Typically, it takes anywhere between three to four years uh, because you're investing a ton of money in things like compliance and infrastructure and technology. Uh, but in this case, we managed to turn a profit after quarter number five. Um, so it was um, definitely the right time to um, enter the market with that kind of philosophy. Great. Now, when you think of banks, um, typically, especially in the startup world, you don't think of banks as being a fintech firm. And you have investors today that are Silicon Valley uh, investors noted for tech investments. So tell us a bit about what makes Cross River a fintech play um, as opposed to just a traditional bank with a charter? So that, that, that's a great question. And, and it, it's, a, um, it, it's not only in the positioning, because obviously you could um, position yourself in a certain way if you succeed in, in your marketing campaign, your branding exercise, that you may get lucky enough and, and convince people that you're, um, that you're it. However, um, it, we believe in the banking world it takes a lot more than that. Uh, and, and basically, we're trying to stay true to ourselves. So in other words, we're not trying to tell the world that we're not a bank. We are a bank. However, the way we view banking of the, in the 21st century and beyond is radically different than um, how people perceive banks. So in other words, instead of positioning ourselves as a fintech play, we're positioning ourselves as a new bank play um, and basically making a rejoinder between what a bank should be and what fintech aspires to be. Um, and um, that entails a host of compliance modules, a host of technologies, a host of not only fintech but rec tech as well, um, but not necessarily uh, providing services such as uh, an ACH platform or a, um, access to uh, certain payment rails, but it's really a very comprehensive suite of products into a what we call bank as a platform that would enable anybody to basically plug and play um, into the payment rails, into the payment systems, and um, and develop a, a little bit, a, a pay, not only a payment strategy, but also a banking strategy um, for their um, um, aspirations as, a, um, as a beyond the, the branding exercise that they've been um, very successfully implementing for the past 10, 20 years, like a, an Uber or a Facebook or a Google or a PayPal or an Amazon and so on and so forth. Interesting. And, and what do you think has prevented or slowed some of this within existing large banks? Why, why haven't, why did the opportunity that you are tapping into, why does that opportunity exist? So I think we need to stay nimble um, and the size does matter in the sense that staying small and nimble has helped us um, stay under the radar and also adapt very rapidly to not only the regulatory requirements, but also uh, some of the technology um, um, advancements that uh, the market requires and demands. Um, and in the case of um, 
in the case of, of a, a large banks, um, whether they're money centers or international banks, um, or correspondent banks, or large correspondent banks, so these are um, also, if they venture into a, a new arena that may cannibalize their own business, like, for example, marketplace lending uh, would, be, would be a threat to the credit card business um, from a consumer standpoint of most of the large credit card issuers. Um, so this is a typical example of why they shied away from marketplace lending. And now you actually see a, an alliance or a, uh, a realignment. Uh, so in other words, we went from a phase of disintermediation of banking services to a remediation of banking services. Basically, the banks realizing well, that the end too bad, and maybe there's a different way of servicing and serving the consumers, and we ought to look at that new offering called marketplace lending or fintech or rectech, and embracing it such as Goldman Sachs and Marcus as um, actually as a new form of doing business, and that's one of the, the various um, avenues that banks have to venture into the fintech space. Great, and uh, marketplace lending is obviously an area you have you have the strongest momentum in since you started, um, and as your assets have grown beyond half a billion. Um, and as the larger banks are thinking about these alliances that you mention, um, how are you today working with the larger banks to make that alliance smoother, easier for them? So, so we specialize in um, originating loans on behalf of uh, marketplace lenders, and these I would put them in two different categories. So you have the pure fintech plays like the Silicon Valley companies, startup mentality um, that spread it out uh, probably in the last three to five years, um, and these include like for example, not that these are necessary clients, but Prosper, Lending Club, Upstarts, um, uh, yeah, and a couple of others. And then we have a different category as well, which is uh, the legacy of finance companies that have been doing a phenomenal job at serving the consumers in various facets of the financial um, uh, product offering. And that, could, that includes, like, for example, large mortgage originators like Quicken Loans, Loan Depot, um, and many others. So um, we have, I would say, two different kinds of marketplace lenders originators. The model is the same you utilize a bank to originate your loans to handle the compliance and also um, the, uh, the payment delivery, so the payment mechanism to deliver the, the funds, uh, the proceeds of the loan to the consumers in quasi-real time. Um, and, um, and, and these, um, like, for example, a, a Quicken loan is uh, capitalizing on the million leads a month that they're getting on the mortgage origination side. And, and to the name of the game basically is how low can you, uh, can you go in terms of customer acquisition? Um, and that's kind of the name of the game. That has been the big battle between all these originators. Us as a bank, um, we are here to provide a service, to provide access to payment rails and a compliance module to anybody who wants to venture into that business. Um, we believe that the legacy players, such as um, um, folks like Marlet Funding, like 
and I call them legacy because they come from the credit card world, um, as well as Quicken Loans and Loan Depot, they do have a compliance infrastructure and they understand the compliance requirements much better than anybody else. So they have a little bit of a leg up there. That's why the banks that are in the credit card space um, could have actually a, a lot to gain from venturing into this business, into uh, providing a different type of loans to the consumers. I mean, uh, this is not news to you, uh, Vinay, that you know, you, you're walking into a bank branch and you want to fill out an application or even go online and fill out an application for a credit card, it may take anywhere between three to five weeks for you to get an answer. The, the, the consumer deserves a lot better. And what these uh, fintech companies on the marketplace lending uh, side offer, they, they do offer a uh, service delivery that the consumers deserve and expect today. And that's, that means that a loan application that is seamless, very um, gooey, uh, very elegant, and within 20 minutes you should have an answer because the technology enables you to do that. And then within 24 to 48 hours you should have the funds in your account. Jill, this idea of banking as a service is very interesting. Are, you, are, are there competitors that you that you have or peers that you would classify as trying to do something similar? Um, so I would say uh, in Europe, yes, um, and I'm not sure I would uh, qualify them as competitors because they evolve on, on a totally different uh, regulatory framework. Um, like, for example, Clear Bank comes to mind. Um, and the idea is not to compete with our platforms, not to compete with our customers. And if we um, uh, uh, basically, if we wanted to uh, really uh, compete with um, with our um, customers, then we would turn ourselves into one of the larger banks, and that are shying away from cannibalizing their own business. And whether it's on the lending side, or like the credit card example that I mentioned before, or on the payment side, for that matter. Um, and that's why um, most banks have been shying away from services like uh, Zelle or Wire Exchange or many others or ACH Works. They wanted to develop their own ACH platforms. The problem is the legacy systems prevents them from having a very GUI uh, interface for the uh, and and um, and a, uh, a user experience that is uh, what the consumers expect today. Um, so in the U.S. per se. We are, we're not seeing, we're seeing um, competition that is very fragmented. So in other words, various people have certain components of what we do, um, but I haven't encountered uh, yet a company or a bank that, that does a full suite of services that is working on a core processing platform the way that we've been um, developing for the past three to five years. Very interesting. and. And given that, do you think of what you're doing as as disrupting or um, incrementally changing the banking industry? Is it something that the fintech world constantly wants to classify firms into? So the the, the interesting thing about um, about the, the banking industry, it's a little bit like the telecom industry. So there hasn't been any innovation except on the acceleration of the transmission of data. And it's a little bit the same thing on in the banking world. So in other words, the payment rails are traditional payment rails, whether it's a Fedline, a Swift, 
Um, the only true innovation on the payment realm, um, I would say it's a messaging in the cloud on the one hand, and the other one is obviously blockchain, which um, is being spoken about tremendously over the past few years now. And, and we saw as recently as uh, today announcement by, by uh, BBVA Santander working on collaboration um, uh, through blockchain as well as uh, JP Morgan Chase. So, um, but, but beyond that, uh, we're basically what we do is we use traditional rails and try to accelerate the movement of money between them to make those payment rails talk to each other and through a, uh, an intelligent router, through a uh, payment gateway, or whatever the case may be. It's exactly the same phenomenon that occurred in the telco space uh, over the past 10 to 15 years. Um, and you have basically a Cisco router that accelerates the movement of data, but basically using traditional um, traditional um, uh, channels, uh, such as a coaxial or fiber, or whatever the case may be. That's helpful. Uh, so, so effectively, you're saying that consumers are better off because the businesses that are facing them, effectively your clients, are able to use more efficient infrastructure, and uh, that's where Crossrover plays a role. Um, now, with that with that lens, what do you think um, are the primary risks for your very impressive growth over the past uh, decade? So, that's a loaded question. Um, I, I would say the primary risk is is really the uh, compliance risk, and the reason is very simple: is because um, this is a, a new arena with new players. This is uh, probably the highest risk um, business in the sense that we're using um, the bank is using third parties to originate whether it's loans or uh, payments, and that's called uh, let's say dealing with money service businesses of third-party payment processors. Um, so these are considered very high risk by the regulators as a whole, by the regulatory community. Um, and they're still writing the book. They're still writing some of the compliance modules. They're still writing some of the guidance. Um, so the, the needle keeps moving or the goalpost keeps moving, and we just have to adapt very rapidly to make sure that we're on top of the, uh, and even predict, to some extent, some of the regulatory requirements. That requires a, a ton of work, a ton of uh, know-how, knowledge base, um, compliance folks on our staff, um, just to make sure that we stay ahead of what the regulators expect us um, to, uh, to deliver in terms of consumer protection. Um, and I, so I would really say that this is um, our primary concern, our primary um, um, probably our primary uh, risk. Um, the the second one, um, definitely on everybody's mind, particularly after the Equifax debacle, is cybersecurity. Um, because we can't ignore the fact that, uh, you know, there are, there, there, there are only two types of banks. There are the banks that know they've been hit and the banks that do not know that they've been hit. But every single bank has been hit. That's just a fact because they're just a very easy target. Um, so it's just a matter of uh, how fast can we respond, how fast can we identify the fact that, uh, you know, there is a cyber breach. Um, so that would say this is the uh, by far the second highest risk. And the third 
is just employee retention and the um, and and talent acquisition. Um, if you want to stay abreast of um, all the technology improvements and innovations that is occurring, you need to get the adequate staff that truly can understand and stay on top of all these innovations and technologies. And that's a little bit of a challenge because, uh, you know, as a bank, how do you convince somebody to stay on as opposed to going to a square or going to a PayPal? Um, it's a lot more appealing. It's on the West Coast. It's hippie. It's a... Uh, you know, it's 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 a, it's a, it's, a, it's a totally different um, proposition, and so that's where, actually, from a branding standpoint, then we're going back to your first question, which is, you know, how do we identify ourselves? Do we identify ourselves as a bank, or do we identify ourselves as a fintech company? So in this case, I would say we're selling the fintech play to death. That's what we have to do. Um, so it's a PR exercise, or you know, branding exercise. And how much of this uh, regulatory risk that concerns you is a wider phenomenon in the fintech industry? Do you reckon that this is something beyond just just fintech as applied in banking, uh, or is it more restricted to the to the banking segment of fintech? I, I would say that the regulators are still trying to figure out how they will regulate the fintech world. And because obviously, if they lose control of the uh, financial transaction, if through disintermediation, uh, then uh, they're um, obviously their the consumers will be exposed. And um, you know, the not only the regulators but the policymakers have been very reactive over time. So in other words, they're waiting for major crises to occur, for them to suddenly pass laws that will ultimately be um, regretted, um, like in many instances, for, for example, there are many components of Dodd-Frank that were probably an overreach um, that have hindered innovation and prevented the consumers to ultimately be truly protected. Um, so that's a classic example that, you know, that I'm sure you've been exploring to death in, in business school at Wharton and others. Um, so this is, um, I would say, the element that is uh, the most puzzling is the, the turf war between the regulatory uh, bodies and also how are the policymakers going to react in case there is a, let's say, another credit crisis where, whereby the marketplace lenders are going to be hit very badly? Is it systemic? Now, we're starting to see because there is a critical mass of marketplace lending loans outstanding now, suddenly people are starting to think, is this systemic? Is there a systemic risk in marketplace lending? So these are questions that did not occur like two years ago or even last year. Um, so there, there is definitely um, a lot of discussion around who will regulate this industry. We are a very strong pro um, proponent of the fact that banks or rather regulators should be regulating this industry through the banks. And the reason is very simple, because we have 200 years of legacy regulatory compliance expertise. We're just piggybacking on what many, many banks and regulators have been doing for the past 200 years in the banking world. And, and we are probably better equipped than a new entrant who is getting, who, who sees himself granted a, um, a, a no CC charter or even on the limited scale. Um, it's not that easy 
to put together a compliance module. It's very difficult, and you need to have, and you know, um, under your vest, a, a tremendous amount of of um, of examinations of of going through um, audits and and um, and and reviews of your of your compliance management system. And that expertise sure. resides obviously in the banking world. That that brings me to. Um a related question from the viewpoint of a policymaker or a regulator banking especially is a field where on the one hand you, know, you you hear views about that the social role of banks is banking and you also hear views especially post crisis that banks need to play a more important societal role um would love your thoughts on on whether technology can move the needle towards one direction or other with regards to banks and how it affects social impact. Right. So that that's a great question. And in 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 general, um, and particularly it's been true in the banking world and with financial services, fintech occurred because the banks left a tremendous void. On the credit side, with marketplace lenders. Um, it was following the credit crisis. On the payment side, it was following the big de-risking exercise that all the major banks have engaged into because they got a tremendous amount of um, AML violations, money laundering violations um, over the past two decades. So they just exited entire markets, like, for example, um, foreign transactions between Mexico and the U.S., a classic example, Um, not dealing with... uh, countries that have a propensity to host terrorists, Sudan, um, Afghanistan, obviously, Syria, and many others. So there are countries that are basically uh, being shut down, even though the vast majority of the population deserves to have exchanges being performed on the financial side. So then suddenly in comes innovators thinking, we have a way to identify whether these people are legitimate or not. We have a way to cross-reference or recalibrate the various lists of, uh, um, of, of let's call them, um, uh, whether they're illicit terrorism or uh, other criminal activities, um, international lists of, um, that you can actually um, extrapolate and with um, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, very easily um, stay out of trouble if you're conducting financial transactions from one country to the other. And that's what uh, the payment space has been evolving tremendously with companies like TransferWise, Earthport, Currency Cloud, Payoneer, and many others. Um, they facilitate the exchanges between one country and the other. Now, these are entire markets that have been exited by the big banks. Um, so I am a very strong believer um, in financial inclusion and uh, the use of technology to enable those transactions to be performed in a safe and sound manner within the confine of international uh, KYC, know your customer, and AML, anti-money laundering laws. And this is really the big revolution, I believe, in over the past three to five years, is the fact that suddenly, thanks to the fact that most banks have been de-risking major marketplaces, 
even though the people in those countries were not necessarily affected by that de-risking, suddenly in comes the technology players, and suddenly that opens up to 5 billion people being able to uh, conduct financial transactions cross-border. And that's the beauty about this business, about the fact that technology came into play to enable this transaction to occur. And that's what we call financial inclusion. And that, I believe, is um, the, the tremendous reward, I would say, uh, not only spiritual, but also um, philosophical reward that the technology players have um, brought to, uh, to this fray. So I was very happy to hear what you said about financial inclusion, Jill. And, and I was wondering, uh, what, are your, what is your thinking about taking one step further and looking at the combination of financial inclusion with financial education? Uh, do you think that there is some scope uh, of, of uh, activities there that could be performed but is not being performed? Oh, yes, I believe so. Uh, we're still um, uh, somewhat uh, far from um, the, the so, so it's one thing for to enable people to um, have access to uh, the payment mechanisms, but it's another one to be fully educated so that they don't fall prey uh, to uh, illicit agents. And we're going to see a lot of, a lot, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of that occurring. Uh, now that the markets, the exchanges are being uh, wide open. And we need to do a, a, a tremendous amount of work in order to embed a, uh, a, the financial education component inside the uh, financial inclusion slash um, cross-border payment mechanisms. Um, in, in addition, um, I think it, uh, it's, uh, it, it is our duty to uh, educate our, our, our kids um, in, in better, more responsibly, um, spending or managing your finances. Um, and I think that um, it, it's great to have a robo-advisory, but um, unfortunately it's a little late um, for the kids to realize that uh, there's such a thing as uh, financial responsibility and planning. Um, there is a tremendous opportunity for people to actually have much, much better lives, at least from a financial standpoint, in the next 20 to 40 years if we do a good job educating our kids. And we're, and we're aware, by the way, of a number of endeavors in that regard. So um, um, I think I, I believe that question is really uh, paramount in a, um, in, in a better way, in contributing to having a better world in the next uh, 20 to 40 years. Thank you. Great. And, um, Jill, uh, if I may just add to that, it's also interesting that the regulatory risk you spoke about earlier is directly related to you know, how educated the end consumers are. Um, any action out of ignorance is more likely to put them in danger, which in turn is likely to enhance any regulatory oversight and which, which comes in the way of a lot of innovation. So. I think innovation needs to go hand in hand with some of the education. Um, that's partly, I think, what the role um, that that the institutions such as Water Knowledge at Water, but also banks have to play. I agree. Um, 
Uh, more broadly, just moving on, you've, you've been in this space for some time. What do you find the most exciting trends in fintech? Um, so I, it, it's really, a, a, I, I would say financial inclusion is probably the most exciting to, uh, to me. Um, the, the fact that we're uh, providing, and this, this is a number I've been um, using um, internally tremendously from a uh, company culture standpoint, I, I, I really insist on my employees realizing that uh, what they do on a daily basis contributes to uh, provide access to credit to over 2.2 million people on an annual basis. And, and this is a, a really a, a source of satisfaction that is very unique. Um, so I, I would say we ought to be very proud of the amount of transactions that we're enabling, um, whether it's the delivery or payment, and we contribute to, uh, we're the settlement bank on for a number of uh, fintech players, and we're executing anywhere between three to five million transactions on a weekly basis. That's also a very a big source of satisfaction. And, and these numbers are not because they're associated to uh, dollar signs and earnings, but the more because we are actually in the middle of providing people the ability to transfer money to their brethren, to their friends, on an international basis or even domestically. Um, um, in addition, like again, going back to access to credit, I mean, this is something that people tremendously suffered from over the past 10 years. And this is the reason why um, this is so exciting, and we ought to do a very good job on the compliance front to make sure, like like you said, Vinay, is to make sure that you know, the regulatory pendulum doesn't go all the way to the other side, preventing innovation, hindering innovation. Um, I mean, this is really our job to make sure to not only educate, we were talking about education before, but we need to educate our regulators as well as our policymakers to make sure that they're making the right decisions and not a politicized decision because going back now would be tremendously painful for people that have tasted the, uh, you know, the flavor of financial inclusion. And we're only at the beginning of it. So I would say this is by far the most exciting. Um, the second most exciting is really uh, the fact that we're uh, taking the lead in um, trying to educate our kids. Um, and it starts very early, and I'm sure you're aware of the, uh, um, of uh, you know, um, some of the uh, analysis and uh, such as the, uh, the the marshmallow analysis that you're from, uh, you know, from the uh, the 60s or 70s. Um, so the, the, these are um, some of the the things that we need to well, to implement um, to uh, bring uh, the financial inclusion to the fore of um, you know of the kids as, as early as possible so that they can uh, realize their, um, their potential and invest in their passions very early on. And as an observer in the, in the fintech industry, not just banking, if you look outside banking, just as an observer, which, um, which areas or segments do you believe has, the, has exciting growth potential? Um, I, I would say, um, so regulatory technology, 
um, even though it's a it's been a little bit of a buzzword lately, um, and you know the uh, the the short version is RegTech, a little bit like fintech's financial technologies. Um, so regulatory technology is what will enable um, the various financial companies to continue to um, innovate within the confine of regulation. And provided, because at the end of the day, um, the biggest hindrance to innovation has been the manual verification of a transaction. And it's still performed by most of the large banks. There's very little automation, very little um, on, the, on, the, on the side of innovation that has been done um, for on the KYC or AML side, particularly on the international or global KYC side. And, and this is, I, I think, this is really what is going to help um, foment innovation and particularly um, help us uh, following the Moore's Law, which is uh, an exponential uh, turn our companies into exponential organizations. So we saw, uh, um, uh, you know, an Amazon go from a, uh, an online bookstore into the, uh, the, 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 the giant that it has become. We saw Netflix, which was basically an, an online um, mechanism to get your uh, your movies delivered now to this monster in the media and telecom space. So these are um, basically the only bastion of of the economy that has an experience, an exponential organization kind of phenomenon, is the financial industry. And I believe that RegTech will enable us to do that. Terrific. Joe, thank you very much for taking the time talking to us and sharing your thoughts on both uh, Cross River Bank as well as industry. Very, very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Vinay. Th- thank, thank you very well. much. Thanks, thanks to both of you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.